Welcome to Sport Management Review Insights. I'm your host, Vito Subrov. In recent years, we've seen a significant rise in athlete branding, and recent real changes in American college sport means this is set to be extremely important for student-athletes. So in this episode, we're going to focus on the brand value of student-athletes. And joining us to discuss this is someone who's published prolifically on a range of topics, including sport marketing and athlete branding. He's Associate Professor and Director of the Sport Industry Research Center at Temple University. It's Tilo Kunkel. Welcome, Tilo. Thank you, Vito. That is the most prolific introduction I've received in a long time. Appreciate it. It's much deserved, and I'm glad I could give it to you. It's great to have you on. You've published so much, and and it's fantastic to finally talk to you. Thilo and co-authors Bradley Baker, Thomas Baker, and Jason Doyle recently published There Is No Nil in Nil, Examining the Social Media Value of Student-Athletes' Names, Images, and Likeness. And and Thilo, there's been a significant amount of research on sport and athlete branding. How did this study, though, advance our understanding of the area? Publication is something that's really near to my heart because I've been seeing, after moving to the US about eight years ago, I've been seeing how much student athletes are really doing on the field, off the field for their universities in, in terms of recognition. And we know the uni- most universities are known oftentimes through the basketball team, the football team, the rowing, the gymnastics, all of those athletics. And it was baffling to me that these student athletes are not allowed to monetize their name, image, and likeness, or short NIL, or NIL. There were main three arguments that the NCAA, so the governing body of student athletes in the one of the governing bodies for student athletes in the United States, that they've been making in terms of why they, why they do not allow them to monetize or to profit off their name, image, and likeness. The first argument was really about that we watch college sports because they're amateurs. Now, that has been debunked by quite a few authors in the past. And then they transitioned to their last two arguments where that the individual value, that the value lies within the university, not with the individual, and that female student athlete would not benefit as much as male student athletes. Therefore, it would be a Title IX violation. And particularly with the rise of social media and ability for everyone to be a powerful personal brand and build that powerful personal brand. I've been looking at the market for quite a while and been saying, you know what, I think I can disprove those two arguments through examining the social media value of these student athletes. And that's what we set out to do, um, provide some ammunition to those lawyers, attorneys, student athletes around the nation to really argue for their case. In the meantime, there's been changes to the NCAA rules. Can you tell us a bit about that and how maybe that also influenced your research? There have been changes starting in 2019 with the with California state law changing and saying that the NCAA can't prohibit the monetization and that that would be coming. We started the research with an initial idea in 2016 at a conference, actually, at the NASM conference. We got together and said, hey, Thomas Baker, as a lawyer, has a law background, Bradley Baker, as a former student athlete in the system and who's conducted quite a bit of research in NCAA rules and regulations. And then Jason Doyle and myself with the, the branding and, and personal athlete expertise, we got together and saying, OK, well, we need to do something. How do we conceptualize it? Um, we started our initial data collection uh, in 2017, followed up. Uh, 2018 with more data, 2019 more data, just to make sure that what we present is robust 
Um, but I've been sharing some of the insights from the research quite a while with our, our temple media department that, that have been done doing a really good job in promoting the message. In the meantime, I've also been sharing these insights to the governing body for California community colleges because the ruling in California said that four-year university granting institutions can't prohibit their student-athletes from monetizing which means that community colleges could still do that based on the state law. So they got together as a group and saying, well, we need to do something. How do, how do we react to this? Because we, we don't have to, but would it not be better? So I've been advising them as well in, through the findings that obviously as part of a, of a larger group um, that have been doing really phenomenal uh, work as well. But we've been advising some of these governing bodies in the meantime. And, Honestly, since the ruling hit and since the NCA basically conceded that, hey, this is not just California, this is Georgia, this is Florida, they realized that they're losing grip of these institutions that are really the money generating programs for the NCA. So they then said, well, we, this is getting out of hand, we need to do something. And then they just overnight basically announced, yeah, everyone can monetize. Uh, we will figure out how we do that. But... Uh, right now, let, let's just do it. Otherwise, we'll lose all the grip. So as that has garnered quite a bit of media attention, been fairly busy with some interviews and, and supporting some of the mainstream media that is, oh, Washington Post. Like, how do we how do we now provide guidance to these student athletes? And it's really nice to see the reporters reach out to academics who have actually gone through the research and not just ask someone for their opinion, but really looking at that those decisions like found in the data. First, I just want to go back and uh, ask about your, your theoretical framework, which you actually mentioned, nil. And it doesn't mean nil as in nothing. So forgive me for stealing your pun. Um, so uh, that was cleverly used in your article, by the way, brilliant stuff. That does refer to name image likeness, which I think you mentioned. Now, can you tell us a bit more about that and why you thought that was a, a useful approach to take in this research? NIL, name image and likeness, is what is used in the legislation. Now in our sport management research community, I think we've really mostly referred to this as athlete brand more broadly. The NCA, because there's a lot of lawyers involved and lawyers like it very specific. So they're, they're drilling it down to that NIL overall argument. So in terms of a theoretical framework, name image and likeness is not really, to, my, to, my, to me, it's not really a theory, but it's what is it that the individual should own about themselves so it's really got, boils down to uh almost like a basic human right as in right like i i should be allowed to say what i what i like to say or i should be selling be allowed to sell what i like to sell that is connected to my name image likeness obviously within reason and what we definitely looked at in terms of a theoretical framework is the spillover effects between institutions between entities so we framed all of this in the in uh, brand architecture, as in the athlete is being part of the brand of the university, and then we framed it around these spillover effects. And I think that's really helpful in showing that this is a broader, this goes beyond our data, and this is this has really the implications on the industry, and is more generalizable than oh yeah, we found that these student athletes have a little bit of a different varying following than their team. Like, okay, well, so what's the so what? And I think that's also what we ask ourselves a lot in sport management research. So what's the generalization takeaway from this research? And I think that's 
having that theoretical framework and the overall framework and, and basing it around brand architecture and the way that organizations are structured and how these individuals within the organization are structured. I think that's really helpful in making sure that we have a more generalizable takeaway. And to actually do this research, you undertook two studies. So in both, you actually scrape data from social media profiles. Now, I'm really literal, so I just picture you with a shovel uh, for some reason. I assume that's not what happened. Can you tell us what that actually means and how you went about doing that? That would be awesome. I, would, I should go for dig for more uh, gold data with a shovel. But we basically had research assistants uh, look up the social media profiles of student athletes from four universities. We looked at two top two top universities in terms of athletics. We looked at two mid-tier universities. We um, looked at an official ranking, how all of the universities are ranked based on the athletics. We took the top two, um, so Stanford, and then we took the college football champion, Clemson, for the top two universities. Then we looked at the median and mean of the rest, and we ended up, uh, interestingly, with Temple. And people were like, well, isn't that, that is too much of coincidence. And I'm like, it actually is just a coincidence. And we then had the student student research assistants help us collect all of the data, all of the social media handles. And then um, Bradley, he wrote the code to basically have a web crawler go through the um, go through Instagram and, and download the number of followers, download the engagement per post. And then we applied some influencer marketing standards to calculate the value of these student athletes and in order to do that we, we reach out to people that make sure that like, okay well the value that we're applying is that really industry appropriate but in terms of the in terms of the data collection we started out with study ones like okay well let's just get the number of followers for uh, the for these student athletes and we looked at the, what we call revenue generating sports football and basketball so in this case men's football and men's basketball and we just only looked at the number of followers. And so that was study one and it provided some initial insight. We're like, okay, well, this is not good enough for what we want to achieve. We need more. And, and following is just one part and it's really all about engagement now. So let's, let's really approach study two properly and also definitely include individual sports as well as female sports to achieve that second objective. Now, how did you go about analyzing what I assume is such a large amount of data that you scraped, as we mentioned, from social media? It ended up being quite a bit of data. So we have over 20,000 posts in terms of the engagement. No, the beauty of the data is once you know how to handle it, it's, it's really just whether you have 10 or you have 20,000 posts in there. Once you've organized it, it's really, it's fairly easy to analyze but the data management took a little bit of of extra work but and that's where also you have particular i i, I had some awesome co-authors here with bradley bakers so really helping out on on all the data management tools and management side and the, and and he's been really helpful with that and and i think that's certainly something that i want to highlight it's it's really important as part of this this research you've shown a lot the importance of having a good team and having a team that has different strengths. So it's not just you times three, we'd all have, you know, all being in the same area, but having a, a team with 
of experts that have various different strengths. So that that was that was super important. As that was one of the main things as well, making making sure that we have what we're really solid on the legal side and and having Thomas Baker as part of, of that and, and him really digging into into the bylaws and really looking into all of the constitutional legal announcements. So that was that was really important. I think that's certainly something that I want to highlight while I'm doing the interview here. That team has been incredible, not just in terms of just ideation, execution, and then revision, revision, revision. Based on the analysis, what were the key findings? The university brand matters a little bit. So I want to get that out of the way. I'm not saying this is not important. It matters if you are at a top-tier university, if you're at Stanford, if you're Clemson. That does help you as a student athlete in attracting followers and then it does not impact your engagement but it helps with the reach makes a lot of sense those universities have oftentimes more media attention are in mainstream sports are on national tv so that's a one of the findings yes it matters but the key part is it only matters a little bit because they are even at these top universities mid-tier universities the number of followers per athlete varied vastly so it really depends on the individual student athletes to build their personal brand and oftentimes what they put in is what they get out so what we see is that there have been amazing student athletes that have built their personal brand on different social media platforms and whether they go viral on tiktok or whether they build their social following on instagram or twitter it's it's really shown that since the start of allowing NIL that these student athletes, some really put their effort in and get out uh, and obviously are able to build their personal brand. And that's exactly what our data has shown, that there are some student athletes that are absolutely, I don't want to say killing it because that sounds not positive, but they're absolutely killing it on social media. They are having amazing followers. They're having an amazing engagement. And they really had a lot of value and the value differed between the student athletes at the university, even within their own sport. So that really helped us to demonstrate that the value of the student athlete was with the individual, not with the institution. The other value or the other results that we were on a quest to find out and and to prove is that social media is all is pretty much a way to level the playing field between male and female athletes. Now, is it doing everything it can? No. There are still discrepancies in terms of the media attention that male sports compared to female sports, what they get. However, there is no difference or there was no difference in the social media following of male versus female athletes in our data set. And if we look at, so the mean was a little bit skewed towards male athletes, because there were a few football players, uh, Trevor Lawrence, who is an, an absolute star, um, that just absolutely skewed the data. But if you look at the median, it showed that female athletes actually had more followers. Again, no significant difference, but that really debunked the second argument of the NCAA and really helped us to achieve what we wanted to achieve in terms of demonstrating that there is no disadvantage for female athletes. In fact, it's I would argue it's actually helpful because particularly those female athletes do not get the national media attention that the male athletes get they're oftentimes particularly for their sports 
oftentimes college is really the peak of their career. So this is now really the time to hone down. This is time to build the brand and then to monetize it as well. So it's leveling the playing field at least a little bit. How did this research advance our understanding of the theory? Honestly, this is one of the really important questions that I think we always try to look at how does our research advance theory and sport management? And that was not really our goal with this research. We, I think, as sport management, and that's one of my latest aspects, I think research needs to be relevant and it needs to be grounded in theory and it needs to help theory. But essentially, there's not as much that we are really pushing something that we didn't know. We knew that the master brand influences the sub-brand, the sub-brand influences the master brand. We also knew that individuals have personal social media, that there is a value that is inherent to that. Where this research is contributing is it supports that it exists in a setting. Now, should it have existed in a setting? Yes, but, so theoretically, that we should have known that before. However, there were really powerful people, organizations that claimed otherwise. So what we did is we supported this theoretical argument with data. So the real value in this article is about driving policy, is about driving policy change. It's about demonstrating that the value is with the individual in this setting. And that, yes, there are there is collaboration, but essentially it was much more about the relevance of the research and the impact that this research has on the field. Now, just on that practical aspect, which is so important to, the, to this research, what is your practical advice for student athletes uh, and, and athlete training more, more broadly and also for, for sport management uh, or sport managers more broadly as well? I think practical insights from the research come from that understanding that the institution is not going to do it all for me. So if I'm a student athlete, I can't just say I'm going to go to Stanford and suddenly I have 50,000 followers because I'm a Stanford student athlete. It's not happening. You need to do the work yourself. But it also shows that, hey, I can be at a mid-tier university and become a superstar on any of the social medias if I find a niche if I resonate with my target audience. So I think that's part of the implication that is helpful for the industry, for the student athletes that yes, the institution matters, but it doesn't matter as much. What we see is that monetization, and it's part of the finding that came off the the results that we didn't really look out to, to investigate, but the social media engagement for student athletes was much higher than what we see for traditional influencers. So these student athletes have an extremely engaged audience. So that is something that they can really sell on to sponsors and say, hey, I should have, uh, I should get paid more because my audience is much more engaged than traditional influencers. Now what we see. So that's something that our findings show, and that's something that these student athletes can take to sponsors as well. We also see from, a, from an industry perspective, and that's probably more related to the overall ruling of allowing the monetization, there's a vast need for education in the field. So these student athletes, now that they're allowed to monetize, I'm like, uh, how do I do that? And making money is only one part, but what does it mean for the overall brand 
of the athlete. So do I now take this $20 sponsorship deal because it's 20 bucks and it's nice right now, or do I look long-term and maybe it doesn't align with my values? So I think that that goes back to our field as well in terms of athlete branding. What does it mean for the brand? Not just name, image, likeness. Can I make some money? Yes. What does it mean for the brand long-term? And that provides, I think, a lot of research opportunities for sport management scholars and looking at them at these, these student athletes. So what happens if they align themselves with an organization that does not fit with their values? What happens if they take that CBD sponsorship? What happens if they go out and take that hangover recovery cure sponsorship? And is that, does that mean like, oh, I'm a student athlete. It's Friday morning or it's, it's I'm so hungover. Uh, I took this and I'm, I'm feeling fine now. I'm like, if I'm the coach, I'm like, why are you hover, hangover on a Friday morning? You should be in training right now. So I think those are all of these aspects that I think we'll see in terms of, and really in terms of how they activate it, how they build it. And there's a lot of research opportunities for the field. Again, what's the theoretical contribution? We're working, I think, collectively on that theoretical contribution of athlete branding, on that really that theory of individual branding and all of the factors that, that play a role in it. I think that's uh, really good advice. So what I take from that is don't do a Pele and associate your brand with something that probably isn't the best for your overall brand. Well, I guess if you're Pele, you can do whatever you want. <laughs> that's but... true. <laughs> but be careful, of course. No, uh, Thilo, really insightful stuff, really interesting. And uh, as you say, really impactful as well, which is so important, particularly with recent events as well. So uh, I can see how this research is, is going to be uh, very helpful to a lot of people. Thanks, I appreciate it. And, and I think that's certainly something that we, we see in the field that the relevance of the research is something that I think is, is important that we can, as a field of sport management research, should not, we don't need to hide and we don't need to only focus on, oh, when we're making these small incremental, like what we do can be really powerful and the mainstream media can be really interested if we're really contributing to the conversation that, of topics that are, of importance to society. Thanks so much, Dilo. It's been a great conversation. Thank you for having me. It's uh, really nice, great, insightful questions. And uh, I appreciate having me on the podcast. And thanks for listening to Sport Management Review Insights. Head to the Sport Management Review website to check out all the latest research that's being published, including the article discussed in this episode. There is no nil in nil, examining the social media value of student athletes, names, images, and likeness. That's it for this episode, but of course, there are many more you can listen to on your favorite podcast player. And if you could follow the podcast and give us a five-star rating, that'd be great too. Until next time, it's bye for now.